Children don't play here anymore. Families have been torn apart, driven by fear. Livelihoods shattered. Homes abandoned or destroyed. Every day sounds like this after 100 days of conflict in Sudan. Since the fighting broke out on April 15, more than 3.1 million people fled their homes, looking for safety abroad in Egypt, Chad, and the Central African Republic. There is still no end in sight for this ongoing war of generals between Mohammed Hamdan Daglo, known as Hameti, who heads Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces, against army chief General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. Massive efforts are underway by the UN, US, African Union, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and many others to bring the warring sides to a table where they could all agree to end the bloodshed. Around 3,000 people have been killed so far, though these figures might be massively understated as doctors continue to struggle to reach patients and victims in need, while war crimes are being widely documented. This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm your host, Nada al In this episode, we're looking into what has become of Sudan after 100 days of war and how this conflict has impacted the region. But before we start, please make sure to subscribe to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out. We're joined by Sudanese political commentator Osman al-Mirghani and the Nationals' own correspondent Hamza Hindawi, who's been covering the conflict closely for three months now and all the events leading up to today. Welcome Hamza and Osman. Hamza, where are we now after 100 days? How has Sudan changed? Where are we now from beginning to end, if you can summarize it for us? I, I, th- I think we are deep in that dark tunnel, and there is no prospect in the immediate future for that light at the end of the tunnel to emerge for us all to see. This has been one of the most mindless and ruinous wars Sudan has seen. I don't think Khartoum has seen any fighting of that scale or anywhere near that scale since perhaps uh, the Mahdist revolt and the Anglo-Egyptian expedition that crushed it in 1899. Sudan has been, been, large sections of Khartoum has been devastated uh, by this war. And I think both sides in this war are to blame for starting it. It looked inevitable weeks, maybe even months before it began. And now that we are in the middle of it, 100 days later, I I think it is fair to say that uh, the rapid support forces credibly stand accused of war crimes for what they have done, not only in Khartoum, but particularly in, in Darfur, where they launched what is effectively genocidal attacks against members of ethnic African tribes. Now, does that make the army look good? Is the army the better warring site? I don't think so. I think those airstrikes and those art- the artillery shelling that they have been using extensively since the war began is, uh, is possibly responsible for a large segment of the civilian casualties in this war. This is a street-to-street war, and urban. this is urban warfare in a big sprouting city, using artillery shelling and airstrikes is bound to kill a lot of civilians. And that is what's happening in Sudan. Now, I do not know how this war will end. We may never have a victor in this war. And that is not a very good thing because if we have no victor, then the war stands a huge possibility of going on and on and on and on. 
we might have one party taking an edge over the other. So when they go to the negotiating table, eventually one side has a stronger bargaining chip. But I don't think how I don't know how this is going to play out. So much has happened in the last three months, in the last hundred days, that it's difficult to imagine how these wounds are going to heal. It's difficult to imagine how the RSF and the army can coexist again. And it is difficult to imagine that the Sudanese people will actually tolerate anything that a victor or whoever is in charge at the end of the war is going to try and impose on them. The Sudanese have for decades been trying to get a simple thing from the rules, democracy, and they haven't been able to get that. And the, the, the prospect of democratic rule in Sudan seems so remote. And that is very, very sad for a country like Sudan, whose people are known for their political sophistication and for their yearning for democratic rule. Thank you, Hamza. This actually brings us to the next question. Osman, you've recently been in Khartoum. How can you describe how Khartoum has changed specifically as one of the flashpoints of this war since April 15 until today? Uh, yeah, I was in Khartoum for 45 days uh, after the war and I witnessed everything there. I saw the people killed in everywhere, in Khartoum, in the streets, in their homes, everywhere. And the infrastructure is completely collapsed. Nobody can move from any place to another place. Uh, no transportation, no electricity, no water supply. Everything is completely damaged in Khartoum. And most of the people fled to neighboring states or even to inside Sudan in neighboring states and even to neighboring countries like uh, Egypt and Chad. And I think this is the first time in Sudan to witness such a war like this uh, in, uh, the, in the capital of Khartoum. And most of the people are in their homes. They can't go to business. They don't have anything to provide money and uh, to let them uh, continue their normal life. So I think the situation in Khartoum now is completely, uh, is, uh, actually it's not, uh, people are still not desperate from getting a solution uh, to get out of this war. But most of the people, they do think that they don't have enough time to see another Sudan if this continues for this, uh, as this for longer time. What do you mean by that? They don't have time to see another Sudan? Because uh, the situation is uh, as uh, everything is completely destroyed in a way that uh, most of the people, they do think they cannot continue staying in Khartoum for a longer time. Now, uh, for uh, at least in my place, in my area, in Omdurman, uh, most of the, of the houses are empty. Only few families are there, not because they choose to stay, but because they don't have enough money to get out of the city. And if it continues like this for a longer time, maybe for another month or two months, nobody can, uh, can uh, uh, tolerate to stay more like that in uh, Sudan. Um, Asman, you spoke to us about your time in Umdurman. Uh, you, you explained how there are people there who are stuck, who don't have the resources and the means to escape. What are their options? Actually, they are trying to, uh, to protect themselves by themselves because the army is not protecting the people in their homes uh, and no police to provide protection for them. 
So everybody is trying to seek his own uh, way to protect his him, himself and his family and properties. And that costs them a lot because they don't have uh, weapons, just like the RSF to comfort the RSF. And they don't have any other uh, shelter to go in Khartoum or any other town. And if they have this shelter, they have relatives in somewhere, they need money to transport from Khartoum to other cities. And that is also very risky because the way from Khartoum to this to the neighboring cities is not uh, uh, is not quite secured. And so they are forced to stay in, in their homes, but they are living in a very miserable condition because most of them, they don't have electricity. And even some, some uh, of them who have electricity, they don't, they don't have electricity for all time. They have to stay in darkness for maybe half a day and they don't have enough water and even they have water sometimes this water uh, is not uh, uh, suitable for drink to be drink uh, so the situation is very very miserable in uh, inside khartoum in the side three cities actually khartoum and khartoum bahri and umdurman and most of the people now uh, yeah the the people who are left in these cities are waiting looking for their watches for to see the time when they have to uh, enjoy the, the peace and uh, war stops. Hamza, can you talk us through the different rounds of negotiations? Uh, ever since the war began, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have rushed to bring the warring parties to the table. Uh, but since then, a lot of things have happened. Can you talk us through this entire process? Yeah, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia mediated indirect negotiations between the two sides in Jeddah, as you know. The two sides agreed to as many as 10 ceasefires, none of which were heeded or fully respected. Then the Americans and the Saudis were very dismayed by that, that they suspended the negotiations. However, a few days back, we, we heard uh, reports that the army delegation or the delegation that represents the army in this war is back in Jeddah. But we haven't heard that the RSF has sent a delegation to Jeddah for the negotiations to resume. So that's there's a bit of mystery about this, although I am hearing reports that the negotiations may have quietly begun in Jeddah, but I, I couldn't independently confirm this report. And then we have the initiative by the uh, the African Union and EGAD, which is an East Africa and Horn of Africa regional grouping, but that's not going anywhere because um, Sudan has, uh, uh, or the army has reservations about Kenya, Kenya uh, leading that track. And then we, we, we had the uh, we had we had Egypt hosting the neighbors of Sudan uh, last week, and they came up with a detailed uh, blueprint for a peaceful settlement. But like, like always in these cases, these things uh, take time to be translated into something that is tangible. And uh, it is very obvious that neither side in this war has an appetite uh, for either ceasefires or uh, a peaceful settlement. Uh, maybe uh, they're hoping to strengthen uh, their position in the battlefield so they can have uh, a better chance of imposing their will on the other party. 
I just I just don't know. And there are other caveats and nuances to all this, like General Hamidi has not been seen in public in close to three months. And where is he? He keeps on releasing audio tapes on um, social media platforms. Uh, and then we have uh, General Abrahan, who is reportedly besieged somewhere in Khartoum, most likely a section of the armed forces headquarters in central Khartoum. So as you can see, it's, it's very complicated and it will uh, it will take ages to resolve. You have to remember that Sudan has this unfortunate nag for long civil strife. We had a war in South Sudan that lasted more than 20 years. And the war before that in South Sudan lasted uh, uh, for a good 15 years or more. We have the Darfur War that never really ended, to be honest. So I I don't wish this to be repeated, but let's bear that in mind. Uh, civil wars in Sudan go on for years and years. You mentioned that both parties are not interested in a ceasefire. Why is that? What is in their interest to keep the war going? They, they keep on fighting, but, but, but that must be looked at as the absurdity of war, any war. You keep on fighting. You, uh, you want to emerge victorious. And also one reason why they may not have an appetite for a settlement at this point is that because they do not know what Sudan would be like or what, where they would be, I'm referring to the two war sides, where they would be, if this this war ends, you have you have two armies fighting it out in the capital and elsewhere in Sudan. And if you judge uh, if you if you judge the situation by the rhetoric that is filled with hate and resentment that's coming out of both sides, it is very difficult to imagine that they are going to be talking peace anytime soon. Actually. The negotiation, uh, they use, the two parties, they use the negotiation as a way to, uh, to just to buy time. Because they, uh, at the beginning, I think during the last three months, they do believe that uh, they, can, uh, uh, they can win this battle for each one of them. And after three months, now they come to the fact that this is completely uh, uh, impossible. And if it is possible in any Anyway, this will have a very high cost and it will take very long time. And during that time, Sudan will be a fragile country and it may be split it into more than five states. So, so now uh, the two parties, they do believe that the only way to finalize this uh, war is to go to the uh, negotiation table. And I, I am very optimistic about the coming round in Jeddah. I do think that they are very close now to reach an uh, an agreement, at least agreement for fire to uh, to cease fire, the first agreement, and after that they can negotiate again uh, the to finalize the problems, the uh, the military problems with the military differences between them, and maybe the third uh, they they can go also to the political situation and try to uh, find some way to solve the political uh, problem, which will lead to stabilization of the country. Um, A question to you both. Do you envision a political solution which entails the RSF being integrated into the army, just as we were seeing before the beginning of this war? 
If not, what would the alternative be? I'll start off by saying I personally can't imagine what the solution would look like now, but but we might know what the solution is going to look like two months later or three months down the road when one side has considerably weakened, one side has uh, has been dealt a series of major battlefield defeats, um, uh, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Regional powers have a stake in Sudan, uh, shifting their positions, withdrawing their support from one side and giving it to the other. There are many, there are many factors uh, playing out in there. And but to answer your question, I I can't tell at this moment uh, what a solution would look like. But I can tell you what Sudan would look like if this war continues, and that is grim, sad, and unfortunate. Not just for Sudan, but for the rest of the region. People are already talking about Sudan being carved up into spheres of influence, not just by the two warring sides, but by rebel movements in Kurdufan, uh, in Darfur, in the Blue Nile province. We, we could talk about a failed state within a month or two, maybe three months. That all sounds very grim and pessimistic, but when you look closely at how this war is being fought, it is a realistic scenario for Sudan at this point of time. I think this is the final uh, resolution because the RSF, they already agreed uh, basically in the last uh, December, they agreed to be integrated in the army. Uh, but uh, how to be integrated, that was the question which has led to this uh, war. I think now, uh, because they already agreed, uh, I think this will not be a problem even in the negotiation in Jeddah. But the problem will be how to do that and how to cease fire till this can be done because most of the people do, uh, do, do think that first they have to cease fire for uh, a limited time during this time they can negotiate how to integrate the rsf in the into the army and this will take time maybe a couple of months and during this negotiation People should not be affected by the war or affected by the negotiation. They should be completely isolated from this negotiation by living in a normal way. Uh, this, this for sure means that uh, there should be uh, uh, separation of the two armies. They should be separated by a third party, maybe uh, a national third party or even African third party or international their party. This will give them ample time to negotiate the differences in the military situation and will give the people the time to try to restore their normal life. And for sure, the RSF will not uh, reject the plans to be uh, integrated in the army as, as far as these plans agreed uh, on it by negotiation, not by force. Hamza, you recently reported something really interesting about civilians fighting the RSF. What can you tell us about that and why are civilians doing that? Well, I mean, the RSF tried to market itself in the, in the, in the months in the run-up to the war as a people's army, as a pro-democracy movement, and started to attack the army generals for clinging to power, allowing Muslim militants back into positions uh, of power. The RSF has shown itself 
to be everything but what it says it is. They have fallen back on their old Janjaweed ways, the militia that, that the RSF has its genesis in. And that was shown clearly in Darfur when they attacked ethnic Africans about two or three weeks ago in the town of Al Janina in Western Darfur and other towns. They're not behaving themselves much better in Khartoum. There are reports of sexual assaults. They're occupying homes. They are looting. So it is very natural for civilians to, to attempt to protect their property, to, to protect female members of their families. And let's not forget that General Al Burhan did call on able bodied men to defend themselves and did call on able bodied men to come to military bases, army bases in Khartoum where they can be given a rifle to use in defense of their property, their families, and themselves. So, you know, the RSF, you know, it, 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 it is failing terribly as the force or the army that it had tried to project itself as. In, in fact, they only inspire fear in the hearts and minds of the Sudanese because you can't take the ginger weed out of the RSF. Are people actually taking up General Burhan's invitation to take up arms and defend themselves and their homes from the RSF? Some of them, they uh, actually they try to uh, they try to to uh, to do that, but I don't think this is uh, for all of the people because most of the people they don't have enough uh, training. Uh, and to to uh, to get the weapons and try to defend themselves or to protect their families, and uh, I think uh, this is this Prohan uh, uh, is calling some specific groups of uh, people who have been uh, in the army before or police or in other. Uh, uh, forces before uh, and they and they have enough experience to uh, to defend the people or protect themselves not all the people can do that or not all of the people can answer this call so who has more control on the ground right now who does the war seem to be in favor of uh, this is two different questions actually in ground the rsf is more uh, uh, has more control in in the three cities and outside some of the cities, but the the war in the favor of the army, I think, because uh, the RSF now, although they control most of the uh, of the areas, the districts inside the cities, but uh, they are not uh, able uh, to uh, uh, to achieve their goals because when they start this uh, war, the RSF, they uh, they declared their goals. They said they want to uh, uh, to to change the command of the army and to bring democracy for the country. And this is now very far away. They are they cannot do that. They cannot even uh, get closer to this in any way. And most of the people they don't think this uh, RSF can give them democracy. And nobody believes in this. So they can't achieve their goals. Hamza, you're speaking to us from Egypt, um, where you've been reporting on the war in Sudan. Can you describe the situation there with regards to Sudanese refugees who have fled 
from Khartoum and other parts of Sudan across the border into Egypt? What have they been telling you? We, we, we're, we're talking about at least 250,000 Sudanese who are now, who have been, who have arrived in Egypt over the last three months. But bear in mind that Egypt has, for many, many years, a resident Sudanese community of four to five million people. The two countries are so close that, and, uh, and traveling between the two countries is so frequent that the average Sudanese that's coming to Egypt does not pose challenges of the sort if a refugee goes to a country for the first time or to a country where he does not speak the language and so on and so forth. Now, Cairo is a city of more than 20 million people. Even if all 250,000 people come to Cairo, they would barely be noticed. However, there are some districts in Cairo uh, where the Sudanese are concentrated. Uh, some of these are downtown uh, Cairo, others are in the, uh, in, the, in the suburbs. But almost every Sudanese from northern Sudan has a relative in, in Cairo who has lived, or in Egypt, who has lived in Egypt for decades. It's like a second, I mean, I know referring to some country as your second home is a cliche, but it applies aptly to the case of Egypt and Sudan. Uh, and uh, they are not in refugee camps, obviously, as the Sudanese who have uh, gone to Chad or to perhaps uh, the, the Central African Republic. So they're renting apartments, they're leading normal lives. It's too soon to tell whether they will also enroll their kids at schools. But, uh, but Egypt has for decades been receptive to uh, population movement uh, from Sudan. Osman, you're also speaking to us from Cairo, where a lot of Sudanese people have fled. Can you tell us a little bit from the people that you've spoken to, how they've been coping and adapting to life in Egypt and how they're preparing for the future there? Actually, the hospitality of the the Egyptians and the government uh, uh, made so many things very easy for them. And I think... uh, most of the Sudanese who fled to Egypt, they are from the middle class, not from the poor people who cannot provide uh, uh, for themselves uh, the uh, needed uh, financial support to stay for at least a couple of months. But I noticed that most of these people who uh, came to Egypt now, they do not have enough resources to continue for longer time. Maybe they can stay up to October. And after that, it will be very difficult because they need to provide uh, financial support for their children in the schools, to go to the schools. And they need to have more uh, money for rent and transportation and uh, food extra. So they have limited time. During this limited time, they have to look for some other solutions. Some of them they have already they have a support from their relatives in the Gulf states who are providing them some financial support. But I think also this will not be uh, going for a longer time. I think up to now, this is uh, July, uh, most of the Sudanese in Egypt, they are in uh, a good position and they are helping themselves. But uh, this is, will not continue for a long time. 
Thanks to Hamza Hindawi, the Nationals correspondent in Cairo, and Sudanese political analyst Asman al-Mirghani, who is also in Cairo, for helping us understand how Sudan has changed in the last 100 days and what its future may hold. This episode of Beyond the Headlines was produced by Arthur Edison and Dua Farid. I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. Thank you for listening. Please let us know what you thought about today's episode and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.